All right, go ahead, open up to Daniel chapter 2. Daniel chapter 2. We are continuing our series through the book of Daniel. And uh, we have a, quite a timely sermon for today. And I mean timely in light of events that have occurred in this globe uh, with Russia and Ukraine that we watched this week. Uh, this last week we watched uh, as uh, senseless what appears to be senseless evil broke out in Ukraine uh, as Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, I don't pretend to know the details of this. I don't pretend to understand Russian politics or anything like that to a degree that I could honestly really well speak into the ins and outs of this. From what I do see and what I understand, it seems senseless. There was a moment this week where Jordan and I, Jordan, our worship director, and I were in the office and uh, a video came up in my feed. Some of you have seen it because the video became a major headline article on a couple news sources. Uh, but a video came up in my, in my feed. Ukraine, I believe, has called every able-bodied man uh, between 18 and 65 to stay and pick up arms and fight. Uh, and there was a video of a young dad in Ukraine. He looked like me, young dad, with his little girl, looked like one of my little girls, uh, as he was putting a hat on her and just giving her a hug and putting her on a bus and trying to get her to safety so he could stay behind and fight for his nation. And you just saw this, I, I was watching me, this, is, this touched me in a very unique way, I, I was watching me and he was, he, he was holding his daughter the way I would hold my daughter. He had his cheek up against her belly and was he just hugging and crying and sobbing. And I just broke down, just, I, I, I turned it off before I could finish it because it was too much. Jordan was in the room and I, uh, I said, I was just kind of losing it a little bit. I said, I gotta go. This is what I just watched. And uh, I came back in the room a few minutes later and Jordan was, was weeping as well and had seen the same video. As Christians, what core doctrines drive us today in that circumstance? What does our theology have to say about what we believe and know and understand on this day, a few days after Russia invaded Ukraine? How does it speak to us? What theological principles ground us so that we are not behaving the same way as an agnostic or an atheist who honestly is living in a chaotic, random, accidental world or believes they are? If you believe you're living in a random, chaotic, accidental world, you are in a very dangerous situation right now. But if you're a Christian grounded in theological truth, in the promises of scripture, and you know what the Bible says about who God is and what is happening with global empires, then there's a different response that Christians have in moments like this. Does God have anything to say about the rise and fall of empires? Does God have anything to say about how nations go to war with each other? Yes, he has a lot to say about it. Today we continue our study through the book of Daniel. Uh, and if you recall the big picture, we're going verse by verse through this book, book and recall the big picture. Daniel is a great, great grandson of King David of the Old Testament. And he was a, a political leader elite in Jerusalem when Jerusalem was overtaken by King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. Daniel gets taken as an exile out of Jerusalem. He gets taken over to uh, uh, Babylon where he is then promoted to one of the right-hand men. He becomes one of the wisest council members in Nebuchadnezzar's court. And that was simply sheer grace on God's part, just giving Daniel incredible wisdom. Can I just speak into that for a second? We need to pray that world leaders have men like Daniel around them. 
Christians who know and love God, who have unbelievable wisdom, who can give wise counsel. That's one of the best things you can be praying as a Christian, as a Christian right now over this situation, is that wise Christian, godly men and women would be giving good biblical counsel and that leaders of the world would be taking that counsel. Daniel, then, is in the, in the court of Nebuchadnezzar. Last week, Kenson preached this message on the beginning of chapter two, where King Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man in the world, we do not have an equivalent to a King Nebuchadnezzar. He was the, the sole emperor over the globe, essentially, at the time. So we don't have an equivalent like that today, okay? But the most important man in the world has a dream that he is so certain has symbolic meaning to it. And because none of his enchanters or astrologers can give him the content of the dream, he's about to kill all his wise men. And then Daniel comes up and says, whoa, Nebuchadnezzar, pump the brakes, okay? I serve a God, not like your astrologers, but I serve a God who can give you the contents of that dream and give you its interpretation. Today, we get the content and the interpretation. Now, a little caveat. Uh, we are digging into what is one of the most fascinating chapters in the entire Bible when it comes to prophecy. Uh, chapter two and chapter seven of Daniel are fascinating. I have 30 minutes or so left, 35 or so, to, to preach this sermon, and I, I could do this, I, I could do three, four hours on this. There's a lot to cover. I'm gonna do my best to walk us through what is a fascinating passage. Here's what I need you to know before I even begin. Daniel chapter two, one of the reasons it's so powerful, it was written about 550 B.C. That's 550 years before Jesus, before any of the empires it speaks about occurred. Daniel, in this chapter, looks out to what is his future, writing from 550 B.C., and accurately, to a T, writes down what are the next four, in fact, five major empires that would come into the globe over a period of over 600 years. Nobody can do that unless there's a living God speaking to them. That is apologetic proof of the God of the scriptures that this Bible can be trusted. Today, atheist scholars who read Daniel, the best they can do is try to come up with a case that Daniel was written much, much later after the events. But that is not true. Everybody knows, and there's good evidence to be had that it was written exactly when it was said it was written. So with that as a caveat, and maybe a little bit of a carrot to get you excited about today, Let's dig in. Remember, Daniel has told Nebuchadnezzar that he will tell him the contents of his dream and he will also tell him what it means. So let's start with verses 31 through 36 of chapter two. Let's read the contents of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold. Its chest, and arms of, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand. It struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces and became like the chaff of the summer, threshing floors. And the wind carried them away, so that not a trace of them could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Now, just to kind of give you an image of this, all right? Can we put up the first image, Chris? Image of this. Here's essentially what the dream is. Here's an artist's rendition of it. There's a statue, okay? Huge, mighty, terrifying statue, right? Think Statue of Liberty, but bigger, looking out over the whole land. It's got a head of gold, 
It's got chest and arms of silver. It's got body and thighs of bronze. Then it's got feet or it's legs of iron. And then the iron flows into toes that are both uh, iron and clay toes. So this is a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Then out of nowhere, the stone comes, it hits the feet, the stone that was cut by no human hands, demolishes the statue, and over time, the stone grows to become the biggest mountain in the entire planet. That's the dream. Now, what could it possibly mean? Let's listen to the interpretation, starting in verse 36. This was the dream. Now, we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, and the might, and the glory, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all, you are the head of gold. Okay, so we're getting interpretation here. You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. That would be the silver shoulders. And yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. So we're seeing each layer of the statue represents a coming kingdom on the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw, the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage. But they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this, this moment where Daniel was standing right then and there. The dream is certain and its interpretation is true. Okay. Well, Daniel gives us the interpretation. What's amazing about this is with the lens of our hindsight, looking back into history, we can see what was Daniel's foresight, what he did not know exactly what nation, just describing what was going to take place. We can look with hindsight and map out what nations and empires he was speaking about. Daniel's interpretation essentially says that each of the layers of this statue represented coming empires that would come over the globe. And as I said, it's pinpoint accurate to, to how world history actually occurred. Also, I will say this, we are going to come back to this material in Daniel chapter seven. And in chapter seven, we get far more details. Almost the same vision, same dream, but different details in a slightly different way. So two and seven of chapter of Daniel match up with each other. Who's the head of gold? Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel says very specifically, he's the head of gold, right? The chest and the arms of silver. The chest and the arms of silver represent the kingdom that came after Babylon, and that was the Medo-Persian Empire, whose great leader was Cyrus, who we actually meet in Scripture in different books of the Bible. So the Medo-Persian, uh, actually in Daniel, by the end of Daniel, we'll meet that empire as they take over Babylon. 
So that the chest and the arms of silver represent what would be in history the Medio Persian Empire with Cyrus over that uh, as the greatest of that empire. One interesting note on that, the text says that the, 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 it's an inferior empire to the head of gold. What's interesting is the Medio Persian Empire was actually bigger than the Babylonian Empire. And so it's in, how can it be inferior? The way it's marked as inferior as, is in its, uh, its sinful degeneration. When you look at the atrocities that were committed by Babylon and then you look at the atrocities that were uh, committed by the next empire after them, it progressively got worse. Next, we come to the middle and the thighs of bronze. What was the next major empire in world history? Now remember, Daniel's writing from before any of this took place. So he doesn't necessarily have the names written with what empire this is. He's just saying that another empire will come of bronze. It was the Greeks. And who was the great empire, who was the great emperor over the Greeks? Alexander the Great, world history. This is exactly how it played out. Alexander the Great became the next world empire, emperor. Uh, in Daniel chapter seven, we'll see some details where Alexander is pinpoint defined. Some of the details, like he died a very quick and sudden death at a young age with no heir and left his emperor, empire to four separate factions. That's written about in Daniel chapter seven. Again, hundreds of years before it occurred. What comes after the Greeks in world history? This is any of you world history buffs out there. What comes next? The Romans. The Romans. And the, the legs of iron represent the Romans. Now, I'm gonna show you some different interpretations here in just a moment. But the legs of iron represent the Romans who ruled with an, what kind of fist? An iron fist. If you read about Roman history, and you know who the Romans were and what they did, the kind of stuff they did, how they crucified hundreds of criminals at a time, they were iron rulers, okay? So, they were the legs of iron. Now, at this point, we get to the feet that were partly iron and partly clay. This is where it gets slightly controversial, but I don't think it's controversial at all. I think it's very clear. Are the feet that are partly iron and partly clay speaking about the description of the Iron Empire. This is, the feet, it's not, in other words, are the, are the feet of iron and clay another empire? Some other empire that we need to look for? Or is it a description, a greater description of Rome? I think the text is very clear all the way through that this is a description of Rome, that they were brittle, they had weaknesses, and they had infighting, remember? Caesar was killed by Brutus, right? Like there, there was cracks in the Roman Empire. It, it, didn't, it didn't work all that well. There's a number of other reasons to believe that. However, some people believe that, and this is where it gets with times like we're living in right now, some people believe this is a prophetic word about a future kingdom, and what they're looking for is some kind of United Nations, NATO alignment of 10 kings to come together and form another global coming together organization. And if you are someone who likes reading Christian blogs, blogosphere, and you're looking at prophetic words, sometimes you're like, you look out and you say, well, is it the United Nations? And if it's the United Nations, what happens next is maybe once the United Nations whittles down to 10 countries in it, that's this, and then we know that Jesus is gonna return because he's the rock that comes and establishes himself. And so you kind of live on edge, like, is that it, is that it? That's an interpretation. I don't wanna be so bold as to say that's a completely false interpretation. I would say I don't think that does the best with the text. I don't, I don't think that's what the text is teaching. I think it's pretty clear that that's not the case. Rather, 
I think the 10 toes represent 10 kings of the Roman Empire. It's the same with chapter seven where you meet a beast with 10 horns that represent 10 horns of the Roman Empire. They line up with each other perfectly. Uh, the stone, and here's why. What happens next? A stone that's not cut by human hands hits the statue on the feet, okay? Daniel chapter two, verse 34. As you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. Well, Daniel interprets this stone. So what is this stone? Keep in mind, there's two interpretations here. Does the stone that represents this eternal empire that will be set up represent Jesus coming back in the future, which he will come back in the future, or does it represent when the Messiah would come the first time, which for Daniel was in his future. It's in our past. It was in his future. So is it our future or is it our past? And what are the implications of those two decisions about this passage? Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain, its interpretation is sure. All right. Well, what do we know about the stone? Well, let, let's just kind of break it down. What did the text say? First of all, it says it arose in the days of the kings of the fourth empire. So this stone that was cut with no human hands arises in the days of the kings of the fourth empire. What was the fourth one? Rome. It arises in the days, in the days of those kings. Second, it's an eternal kingdom, one that will never be destroyed. Third, it will be greater than every other empire that has ever been established on this earth. Fourth, it was not kingdoms that built this empire on military strength. It was cut with no human hand. So this is not like it's a great empire because it's got military strength and kind of fortified castles. It's not cut with human hands. It's not made the same way other empires are made by humans. This is something made by God. It's a different kind of empire. Fifth, if we go back to the details of the dream in verse 35, we see that this empire, in fact, progresses over time and grows. What does verse 35 say? Verse 35, uh, and it became like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, and the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. It grows from a stone into a mountain that is so great that it fills the earth. Now let's walk through those five things. My case is that this is representing Jesus' empire that he established in the midst of the Roman Empire, which is actual history, as a stone, not cut by human hands, it was God's death on the cross, right? Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, taking place, taking the wrath of God on his shoulders on the cross, not cut by human hands, a few people in Jerusalem that grows to the biggest empire the world's ever seen. Well, what do we see? First, when did Christianity arise? As we know it in the midst, in the days of those kings of the Roman Empire, of the fourth part of this statue. Second, it's an eternal kingdom, one that will never be destroyed. That was one of the qualifications we saw. What Jesus established is an eternal kingdom. If you're a Christian, 
you will reign forever underneath the kingdom of Christ. You have a sure, guaranteed inheritance in Jesus that can never be taken away from you. It's eternal, it will not end. Third, it is greater than every other empire that's ever been established on this earth. Think think for a second uh, about Napoleon. Have you ever read the writings of Napoleon Bonaparte, the French emperor? This man had some interesting takes on Jesus. Here's a quote of his on Jesus. Napoleon Bonaparte. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force, an empire cut with human hands. Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love, and at this hour, millions of men would die for him. It's Napoleon. So what's the third qualification? It will be greater than every other empire that's ever been established on this earth? It is, right now. The greatest empire that's ever existed on the planet is the empire of Jesus Christ, his kingdom that began during the days of the Roman Empire and that you are all a part of. Fourthly, it was not cut by human hands or by human effort. It was built by Jesus Christ. Fifth, if we go back in the details of the dream, right, it progressed over time and it's continuing to progress. The stone has become the cornerstone, the one that the builders rejected. The stone started as a small thing and is progressing to be the greatest mountain in the entire earth, the earth where every nation comes to it. What does Jesus teach on this? Jesus taught this kind of thing all the time, didn't he? Matthew chapter 13, verses 31 to 32. Jesus put another parable before them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in the field. It's the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it's larger than all the other garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying exactly what the dream to Nebuchadnezzar was saying, that it was a stone that's gonna grow to become a great mountain. Jesus says it's a seed that's gonna grow to become the greatest of trees in the forest. And what happened in human history? Actual human history. Right now, billions of people on the planet are Christians, part of the biggest empire that has ever been built, not with national boundaries, but with godly boundaries. Additionally, the New Testament teaches that Jesus is the rock to build your life upon, Matthew 7, 24. He is the stone that the builders rejected, Matthew 21, 42. When Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, he told them, behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom, what is a kingdom? A kingdom is a Uh, an empire with a king over it, with citizens of that kingdom. That's you, you belong into that kingdom. In Luke 11, 20, Jesus explicitly states that his power and presence is the result of the kingdom of God coming upon you. Even today, we take this for granted, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, what do we say? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. When we say that prayer, what are we saying? That, that prayer is saying, God, your kingdom is growing and expanding here on this earth. It's been established, the stone's been established, it's growing to the mountain, become the mountain, and as the kingdom grows, we want your heavenly ethic, the way God works, to fill this whole earth as your kingdom grows over the entire earth. That's the, that's the daily way we pray. So, could it be that it's a future telling. What are the implications of that belief? If you hold to the interpretation that the legs and the toes are 
some kind of future League of Nations or United Nations or some group like that, and that this text is telling that Jesus is going to return in the midst of that. Well, one of the implications of that, ethically and the way you live, is that you kind of say, we're not really living in the kingdom right now. We don't really have the power to see your kingdom come and your will be done on earth as it is in heaven right now. That's a future thing when Jesus reigns in person, which, by the way, we all believe he will return and reign in person on this earth. That's not up for debate. That's going to happen. But if you say this is only something in the future, then all of the power is stripped away from Christianity. But if you say, no, the stone has come exactly as Daniel said it would, right in the way he said it would, and in this moment right now, that stone is growing to become the largest mountain on the planet where people from every tongue, tribe, nation will come to it and meet Jesus and his law will go forth. If you believe that, what power does that give you? That means when you go into the streets, you don't go out into the world thinking we're not really gonna win this battle. Like, it's, it's fun to play church, but let's just be honest, like, we're not gonna win, right? I think that's how most Christians think Christianity is. It, it's, if I can, I'm not picking on the abortion ministry, but if we thought of that way with the abortion ministry, it's good to do stuff like this, but let's be honest, we're not actually gonna change the law, right? That takes all the power out of it. But if you believe what I'm saying right now, then the kingdom has been established. It's growing to be the biggest of mountains on all the field in the world. And what that means is that when a Christian walks forward, where you step, you are a representative of the kingdom. And the promise is that you will be effective in what you do. It might not always look exactly what you think it'll look like. And certainly, it's kind of like the stock market. It goes, it goes up and down, but over enough time, the kingdom keeps growing, right? There are seasons, difficult Not so good, better seasons, but on the whole, his kingdom continues to grow. That's the real world history we live in. It's the history you're a part of. See, this is what's so fun about prophecy. Prophecy's fun because it gets you thinking about the majesty of the way God wrote through prophets about what was to come. But it's better when you move beyond the fun factor and you get to the what are the ethical implications for how I live today. Daniel chapter two means you are in the midst of the kingdom growing right now. So let's get busy with some work, right? Now, how do we apply this? A couple ways. How would this have been applied? Before we draw our own applications, how would this have been applied the moment Daniel gave the interpretation? Who, Who was there? You've got Nebuchadnezzar. He would have had something to learn from this. You've got the other astrologers nearby who just had their life saved by Daniel for giving the correct interpretation. They would have had something to learn from this. And you got Daniel. What's Nebuchadnezzar got to learn? Well, Nebuchadnezzar's got a lot to learn. If you go back, there was an interesting verse here when Daniel began talking to Nebuchadnezzar. Did you, see, did you see the way he spoke to Nebuchadnezzar? Listen, verse 37 and 38. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Wait a second, king of kings. That name sounds familiar, doesn't it? The king of kings. To whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. Wait, that sounds familiar. Who do we often say has the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory? God. And into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens. Wait, who's got control over the children of men, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heavens? God does. 
making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. See, this lesson for Nebuchadnezzar was a lesson of who's actually in charge. There's a reality. From an earthly perspective, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of a lot of kings, but he wasn't the king of kings. If you look in the text, it says, Daniel is so bold to say to him, you, O king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar was a passive recipient of the role of being the king over many different kings. This prophecy for Nebuchadnezzar was to be received as a check on his pride. Don't you think, Nebuchadnezzar, that, that you are God? that you built this empire out of your own hands and wisdom. No human could ever do that. This has been delegated to you as a responsibility. Nebuchadnezzar gets it for a moment as he promotes Daniel at the end of this chapter and then completely loses sight of this by the next chapter when Nebuchadnezzar goes out and builds a statue of gold for himself and declares himself God. He didn't get the message. So application for Nebuchadnezzar was, Nebuchadnezzar, let's make sure you know who's in charge. Let's draw that to us. None of us are gonna be Nebuchadnezzar, I don't think, <laughs> okay? But in this modern world we live in with extreme comforts, disposable to you with just a little bit of money, all of us are prone to build our own kingdom. And when you begin building your own kingdom and you begin living whatever life you wanna live, well then you're dealing with the same issue Nebuchadnezzar was dealing with where he began to think that it was because of his great strength and might that he had all the stuff he had around him. He had the authority, he had the power, the influence. How did he get all that? Well, was Nebuchadnezzar pretty great. And in our life, as soon as you begin to say, look at what I've accomplished, look at who I am. I did this, or I, I and, and you take it away from, this has all been steward to, stewarded to me by God. My money, my home, my family, my network, my relationships, Everything I have, it's on loan from God, and now my responsibility is to submit it underneath God. How many of us forget that almost every day? We all got something to learn from Nebuchadnezzar. Pride gets the best of us, and we've got to constantly put ourselves in check and make sure that we are not like Nebuchadnezzar, who's going to hear it and then tomorrow go build ourselves statues of gold, which we all tend to do that, and many of us are doing that right now. What about the astrologers? The astrologers had a lot to learn, didn't they? Their neck was on the line because their idolatry had failed them. Daniel's God showed up. All of us are like those astrologers a little bit. We have a tendency of bringing idolatry into our Christianity. It doesn't oftentimes look like magicians and enchanters of 600 BC, right? But our idolatry, nevertheless, the idolatry of fame, the idolatry of wealth, the idolatry of prosperity, the idolatry of safety, the idolatry of... Uh, state government, that's the newest one on the, on the list of things to idolize and think that is God. We all make idols and we bring this into our Christianity. And, and like the astrologers, what Daniel is teaching us right now is those idols cannot save you. They cannot. They have nothing to do with saving you. Your neck's on the line. And unless you rid your life of idolatry and you put yourself underneath the blood of Jesus, underneath his death and resurrection, and you make yourself a Christian, you permit God to completely give you a new heart, then your neck's on the line and you have no safety. These astrologers needed to learn a lesson that their idolatry was bankrupt. And we need to be reminded that our idolatry is bankrupt. And wherever we see it sneaking into our Christian lives, we need to get rid of it before it kills us. 
Finally, what about Daniel? For Daniel, he needed to be reminded as an exile, not in the situation he wanted to be in, looking at global empires rage against each other, that he served a God who was sovereign over the nations. That not one nation rose or fell at one iota of a second outside of God's eternal decree of when it would happen. Keep in mind, these were not godly kingdoms. Babylon, Medio-Persia, the Greeks, the Romans. All of them underneath the sovereignty of God. What does that mean for us, watching Russia invade Ukraine? Does that mean we just say, well, God's in control? No, it doesn't mean that at all. Not, not, that, that's the wrong concept of sovereignty. If that's what you take away from the study of the sovereignty of God, you missed it. And many Christians have done that over, over the years. What it does, though, as we engage as kingdom builders with the expectation that as we go, the kingdom will grow around us, it gives us a sense of the knowledge that whatever happens is not out of God's control. And even in the midst of the darkest hour, the Christian can sit and just know things are not out of control. My God is over it all, and I can trust him. I might not understand it. I don't, I don't get the details of this right now, but I can worship him. I see him. I know he's in control. I have no idea what the days ahead look like, and we will pray fervently as a church that the days ahead are hopefully far away from worst case scenario and that this comes to a quick end and everything's done away with, that's the prayer. But if they don't, our God's in control and we will gather and we will worship and we will recognize that there's a God who's over every nation. I found this video this week, I want you to see it. Christians representing this very well. This is in Ukraine, a family leading his father, a father leading his family in worship. You might recognize the, the tune to this song as they're singing it, as it's one that we'll be singing in just a moment. This is this week in Ukraine. Oh, yeah. oh. 